Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere that it needs to be. Uh, from my years of experience in this broadband uh, arena, one of the things that I believe is a recipe for disaster is when a community comes out and says, we're going to build a network that is X, whatever the technology they happen to settle on, but they settle on the technology before they do needs assessment, before they really look at a myriad of issues, and subsequently all decisions are made based on them putting the cart before the horse. Uh, and in the you know, broader realm of technology deployments, this question of you know, what technology do you decide on and at what point do you decide on it, you know, the general rule of thumb is that you do a fair bit of needs assessment first, then you determine what your technology solutions are going to be, and there's plenty of examples of what ha- goes wrong when you do put the cart before the horse. So today I want to have a discussion about uh, the, the, the technology that's involved in, in, in broadband networks, but more importantly, uh, looking at it from the perspective of what are the outcomes that a community is trying to achieve and also what other factors, anything from terrain to available budget, really impacts the kinds of technology decisions that they can or should make. And so I have with us from uh, Calix, which is a key uh, fiber-to-the-home vendor uh, that's been at this for a while, Dave Russell, who is the Director of Marketing, uh, and he is going to help us walk through some of these technology issues, terms and terminology, and help put that into a a business and a broadband outcomes kind of uh, discussion. So Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So let's well, let's start first talk for a couple of seconds about what does Calix do. I'm pretty sure a number of our listeners are familiar with uh, the company, but for those who aren't, what are you guys up to? So what we do is we are uh, focused on uh, high-speed broadband, both residential and business. We tend to um, uh, talk a lot about uh, fiber to the home, fiber to the business, because that's where a lot of the growth is. But uh, in all fairness, we also do a lot of fiber to the node and and standard DSL architectures as well. But uh, usually in the, the municipal space and the new operator space, we, we're usually focused on fiber uh, infrastructures since those folks don't have, uh, aren't incumbents and don't have a... Uh, copper infrastructure. That's why within this space, we're usually talking about uh, fiber infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, um, how much needs assessment should be done before a, a community or a region or whatever decide on, you know, the, the main technology that they want to have? 
Well, you know, uh, as you say, I think it's a really important part of the feasibility process because uh, that's going to determine, you know, I think generally uh, that needs assessment, uh, you know, needs to start with what are the services or the capabilities that the network uh, should have, and then uh, usually based on that, get around to what technology or group of technologies is going to uh, be able to address it. And I think the latter is the most important in that I think any viable network today is probably going to need uh, a set of technologies, you know, both wired and wireless, to really give people what they want. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those have to work in combination with one another if you're going to be able to meet uh, kind of the needs of a, of a city or a region. Mm-hmm. Now, in, the many, in many cities right now, I think, are starting to uh, focus on having a needs assessment done, right? And I've, mm-hmm. I've seen a bunch of these RFPs, and some just come out and flat right say, you know, we're going to go build this, uh, fiber to the home network. So we basically want consultants to come in and tell us, you know, what to do. Is there a better, more, I don't know, practical approach? Like should the RFP for the needs assessment phase be asking something different than, than basically defining a technology and basically asking everybody to comply with their technology choice before doing the needs assessment? Yeah, I, I would say generally yes, that uh, if you haven't done that needs assessment piece, uh, then you're probably maybe getting a little ahead of yourself. Um, and I, I would say that we see this most often in communities that maybe are partially or uh, served fairly well by existing operators. So... Um, You know, I think if you approach that needs assessment from the perspective of, okay, how are we going to get the broadband or services uh, over broadband to all all of our constituents or members of our community and then start to, as part of that needs assessment, determine, well, maybe 25% of our residents are getting adequate services and we could supplement those services by building, say, a Wi-Fi hotspot capability in that part of town and then utilize the remaining areas that are maybe underserved or unserved and focus on those. So I think without that needs assessment, you're likely not going to be as strategic about it as you probably could be. Okay. Well, let's put the, then the, the needs assessment discussion on a, sh- on a shelf for a second, and we will come back to that. But now I want to kind of look at some of the very specific uh, tech terms and, and sort of helping people understand uh, where these terms come into play so that when they hear uh, a consultant or they read a you know set of proposals and they're talking about, uh, you know, GPON, or they're talking about fixed wireless, or what have you, that that okay. that people have an understanding of 
what this is all about. One of the first things I think that people need to have an understanding of, like non-tech people need to have an understanding of, is the difference between speed and capacity. Because I okay. hear folks arguing for, you know, one particular solution versus another, or they're arguing for or against broadband or against the gigabit or what have you, and they don't seem, to, in my mind, gather the difference between speed and capacity. What is the difference and why does it matter? Well, I think uh, it matters in the sense of I think what most people refer to as speed is actually capacity. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, frequently in the press you'll see people say, well, the reason fiber optic systems are better than DSL systems, for example, is because fiber optic systems go faster than DSL. And that's actually not true, that, uh, you know, electrons traveling over copper actually travel just as fast, if not faster, than light wave through glass. So it's the actual speed at which something goes through um, the wires is not really what people are talking about. What you are talking about is the overall uh, bandwidth capacity of the system. And so copper systems, be they coax or twisted pair, are limited in, by the nature of the, the wire that you're going over. And um, fiber optic systems are really not limited in that way uh, because essentially they have the capability of all kinds of wavelengths. Now, today's systems generally only use a few, maybe three or four wavelengths. But, you know, theoretically, once you have fiber infrastructure in the ground, its ultimate capacity is unlimited. When it comes to wireless systems, uh, again, most of the time people are talking about speeds. They're really talking about capacity, and that's why you have systems uh, like Wi-Fi systems that, uh, as we've progressed through different stages of standards from G to N to AC, more spectrum has been allocated for those Wi-Fi systems so they have higher capacities, which allows the, that capacity then allows you to serve more people with higher speeds. Okay. Does that help? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that one of the examples I've heard, and I've heard a number of them, is that, you know, if I, if I relate this to a car on a highway, if I am the only car on a two-lane road, I can easily go 120 miles an hour, assuming it's a straight road, uh, you know, in, in a car. But if all of a sudden, you know, a thousand cars every half hour are getting on this road, then I, I can't go at the same speed. Because yeah, that's a great analogy. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. It's you know, and it's true, even down to, you know, in the wireless world where a channel, uh, literally a channel is like a, a road on a highway, right? So if you go from three channels to 21 channels, that just gives you that much more capacity. Mm -hmm. So then, then we need to understand the difference. And then if I can pull another uh, analogy or, or 
something to relate this to. If I have a town of 500 people, then my need is going to be for less capacity than if I have 20,000 people and I know that half of them are going to be on the network almost all the time. Right? So, I mean, that's the sort of the context of understanding my issue of speed versus capacity. So a lot of that, or the, the need for what, you know, for, for this is, is driven by, you know, how many people are you planning to serve, how many at one time, uh, you know, as much as you can kind of project that type of thing, that should be driving a certain part of the discussion about do we need a gig, do we need 50 meg, you know, do we need, a, you know, the 50 meg now and a gig in five years when we grow. I mean, that all kind of comes down to how many people that you're dealing with in a community, I would assume. Yeah, although I think uh, you have to be a little careful on that one because the way these networks are designed, they're all designed, uh, you know, with traffic engineering in mind. So really the only part that I would say changes whether you're in a, a small community or a big community is obviously there's more nodes to the network. But the actual speeds on each of those nodes would be the same whether it was in a small community or a large community. Where the difference would be would be in the backhaul and the, and the peering where you're going back to the Internet and how many end subscribers you have will determine uh, indirectly uh, how much overall capacity you need to purchase. I mean, all of these networks are engineered with oversubscription. So if you've got, you know, uh, 100 subscribers versus 1,000 subscribers, a thousand subscribers will need more capacity. They may not need ten times as much capacity, just mm-hmm. because you have the statistics of efficiency of of the of the law of numbers comes in, where you know bandwidth is being more efficiently utilized the more people that are using the network. Okay. So now let's touch for a second on the oversubscribing because I think this is uh, also a definition that eludes people. I mean, they may hear it being talked about but may mm-hmm. not understand fully what that means because it kind of, I think, mm-hmm. conjures up images of, you know, the I subscribe to a service and I get promised one speed and then what I find is I get about 10% of what the advertisement said I would get. What, what's over-subscribing, yeah. which I assume people plan for in some way, form, or fashion, and and why does this matter to the equation? Yeah, so all telecommunications networks, you know, whether you're on a cable system, a wireless system, a fiber-to-the-home system, they all use oversubscription as a way to lower cost uh, and make it affordable. And... Um, so you can imagine that, you know, in these gigabit deployments, you know, that are starting to take place around the country, if every subscriber had a gigabit to their house and then that same subscriber had a gigabit all the way to the peering point at the, of the Internet, your cost for that would be astronomical. 
and mm-hmm. so nobody would subscribe to the service. So what happens is that each location along the network you utilize over subscription so that the end customer is still able to get that bandwidth when they want it, but when they aren't using it, somebody else can use it. And um, so, you know, people's, when people complain that they, um, you know, sign up for a service and they don't get what they signed up for, that can be due to a number of factors. That can be a choke point between the serving office and their their home, but more likely it's further up where there's more uh, contention on the system. And uh, many people have said, well, if you're in a place that has those kind of bandwidths, once you get up onto the Internet, your speeds are still going to be limited by the servers and whatnot that are running on the Internet, and that's all true. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but usually uh, these, typically these uh, residential networks are rolled out as best effort services. And so that's why, you know, the caveat is you will get speeds up to a certain number and then different uh, operators utilize that over subscription differently from one another. And so that's why you'll sometimes get one entity that... Uh, uh, comes closer to meeting that bandwidth than another, just based on what level of oversubscription they're engineering the network to. And so, if I'm a um, non-tech, if I'm a city manager, for example, or if yep. I'm the economic development uh, uh, director, and I'm looking at, you know, one of our missions is, for example, you know, we we, you know, our town has. 500 businesses, and they need to be on the, uh, you know, on the internet doing all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Moving a lot of mm-hmm. data. Mm-hmm. How should I view this issue of oversubscription? Should I, you know, demand of the vendor or whoever the contractors are to build X factor of oversubscription? I mean, how do I kind of correlate this to my decision-making process? Yeah, I think the easiest way to do it is to separate out uh, residential services and and small business from the larger businesses of the anchor institutions in terms of how you set up the service. And so what what typically will be done is if you're um, if you're the flower shop or you're the you know the the local um, retailer, you probably are fine with something that looks like a residential service. Once you get above that, maybe you're a bank or you're a, an office of a, a large corporation, you're going to have, or a hospital, say, you're going to have some requirements where you really don't want best effort service. And then you sign up for something called a service level agreement. And what the service provider will then do is in their network traffic engineering, they will actually allocate your bandwidth and commit. It's called a committed information service. They'll actually commit to providing you that service independently of what's going on with the rest of the network. 
And um, so they, they'll actually sell you something uh, where they'll charge more for it, obviously, but that is a service level agreement where they guarantee you that bandwidth. And they take that into account as they do their traffic engineering. And okay. so, uh, and then sometimes they'll do that over the exact same infrastructure. So, for example, in a GPON system, which is a shared media system, uh, they'll carve out a particular amount of bandwidth for the business uh, services. Um, or another thing they'll do is they may say, you know, we've got this, uh, you know, very large data center, and that data center is requiring a full one gigabit of bandwidth dedicated all the time. And then they will actually, instead of putting that on the GPON system, they'll just put a point-to-point -point gigabit Ethernet and have that go all the way back uh, to, the say, the peering point so that that data center is is given, uh, you know, all the bandwidth that it needs to, since it's performing um, very high critical information transfer all the time two ways. And mm -hmm. so that's the way they'll design the network to uh, overcome that kind of contention. Now, in terms of uh, planning ahead, it seems like then, given what you're describing you know, in terms of oversubscription and so forth, uh, and, and the whole capacity issue, that the business side of the house, and when I say business side, I'm referring to any of the non-tech people, so any of your stakeholders who are you know, with those institutions, libraries, hospitals, whatever, they, yeah. seem, they, they would have a responsibility to try to keep on top of what their constituents' needs are and projected needs are and feeding that information to the tech people. In addition to, I know that there are tools that monitor network usage, and that's, that's how techies kind of, you know, the, the tech manager, if you will, keeps track of the network and is it time to add another, you know, element to the network and, or expand the network or what have you. But it seems in the ideal situation, what the business side stakeholders should be doing is some sort of continual monitoring of their constituents so that they are providing the, uh, the tech folks not only with the, sort of the engineering data they're observing from their systems, but also sort of this real world, you know, we're expecting a surge of X of usage, you know, based on whatever, that makes for a better long-term, I guess, strategy of, of working forward toward having the best technology available, right? Yeah, and I think if you're a municipal or a, a region uh, uh, or an incumbent in any of those, I think it's in, important to always uh, be meeting with your larger businesses and uh, anchor institutions to make sure that you know, you're getting that information, and as you do your long-range planning, understanding what they're planning to do is is absolutely critical. I mean, if you go back to those, uh, uh, back when there were the stimulus awards, you know, well, I think one of the nice things about that whole process was that it kind of forced people to sit down with their 
various anchor institutions and large businesses and have that conversation. But even on a, you know, an investor-built or a municipal-built network, that same uh, process needs to be followed not only up front but on an ongoing basis because it doesn't take, you know, if I'm a business and I'm planning a major expansion or a, a new service, that's going to have a pretty big impact on the network. Mm-hmm. And I would assume that if uh, if you're a smaller community, these kinds of issues need to be brought up maybe even sooner because in, in a town of 8,000 or 10,000 people, a big user is going to have a greater impact on the network than if you've got you know 200,000 people and several thousand businesses where one or two new businesses isn't going to matter very much. But in the smaller community, I would think that uh, you have to be more sensitive to uh, how that ebb and flow of users um, impacts the network. Yeah, and I think where it, you know, not only does it have an impact on the, you know, the access side, and by access I mean from the serving office to that subscriber uh, or business, you know, because then the business, the operator has to plan their network and add capacity for that entity. But I think it really becomes important on that backhaul piece of it. And by backhaul, I'm referring from the data center on to wherever they appear on the Internet. Because frequently in small communities, um, what we've found is, and this is true, I mean, the FCC has pointed this out in the National Broadband Plan and elsewhere. You know, the small communities frequently, their biggest obstacle is in their backhaul costs. And, uh, you know, they not only have to transport to a peering site, but even when they get to that peering site, they may not be offered the same uh, cost that somebody who's sitting right there at the, at the peering point. And uh, so that's where I really see um, both the opportunity for lowering costs in a community as well as... Um, uh, the challenge because, you know, if you go into many of these communities, they may say, we don't have a cost-effective way to get to St. Louis or wherever the nearest uh, uh, Internet peering site is. Interesting. So, so now, um, so the question about peering, uh, what what is that in the, in the, for the layperson, just so we have an understanding of the peering issue? Yeah, so all around the country in the major cities, there are places where Internet service providers meet, and these are sometimes called Internet hotels. And uh, there's actually a really great um, uh, video tour uh, on Apple TV of the site in New York City, uh, of the Internet hotel in New York City that's just a really well-done piece. You get a sense of what these look like, but if you go into any major city in the United States, you'll run in. You, you these exist, and obviously there's a whole tier of uh, cities, uh, secondary cities and tertiary cities. But um, 
at these sites, generally a Netflix and, say, a Comcast will have a peering relationship where they are not charging each other for interconnection. And uh, when uh, you have a backhaul provider like a level three or, or some other entity who might come through your community, you may do a contract with that level three to get to these peering sites. And level three is going to charge you not only for transporting that information or all that traffic to that site, but they're going to charge you something for that actual interconnection at that site. Okay. And uh, it, usually these are based on the amount of traffic and how much traffic is transferring, you know, one way versus the other way. And these are negotiated. And um, so, you know, we've seen examples of uh, communities that pay, you know, one, two, three dollars a month per megabit at the peering site. And we know of communities that pay 20 or 30 dollars per meg per month. So that literally we're talking possibly 20 to 30 times the difference in terms of bandwidth costs, depending mm -hmm. on where you're located. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to shift gears here for a second. I had a conversation with um, uh, a couple of uh, Kalex customers uh, in, in the past month or two, and um, <clears throat> one of the issues that, that came up and a point that a number of folks are making is that um, at the end user spot, mm -hmm. their primary concern is basically do they have enough speed to, to do what they want, and if a bunch of their neighbors get on the line at the same time, can they all sort of coexist and they all get done what they need to get done? I mean, that's the fundamental need. If you look at that, from, from that perspective, then does it really matter whether or not all or parts of the network are fiber versus wireless or cable versus fiber? In other words, does the, the network technology become less important if the issue of the speed and capacity are met in the mind of the, of the consumer or the business? Well, yeah, that's a complicated question. Um, I would say that uh, today most bandwidth applications theoretically could be addressed by all of those technologies if the network was properly designed. Um, but to do that, uh, you know, what, what sometimes we have happen out in those kinds of, as people evaluate technologies, you have to be make sure that you're comparing apples to oranges. Mm, and I'll mm -hmm. give you an example of, of this. Um, there have been uh, Wi-Fi networks built in municipalities that you know, said they would have enough capacity to meet all of the subscribers' needs in the community. And 
if you had one subscriber on one base station, uh, that would be that subscriber could get sufficient bandwidth. But when you start to share those systems, then you start to push the limits of those systems' technical capabilities. And so if you then compare a wireless system to a fiber optic system, that's where you're going to start to see those differences because now you can have theoretically everybody on a fiber system still running, say, a gigabit when they want it but that's not true on a wireless system. And it just has to go back to that whole issue of capacity. So I think in theory you could design a network where everybody could get the bandwidth they need. Uh, but the reality is it's unlikely you would build, a say, a Wi-Fi network where everybody in the city has their own base station. It, you, the costs would be, by the time you did that, you might as well put fiber to them. And so right. those okay. are the trade-offs that people, you know, you need to determine what are those bandwidths that you're trying to deliver based on what the services are you're trying to deliver. Right. So that would be the one difference. I think the other difference is, is any time somebody puts infrastructure in, you need to have a long-term investment horizon. You're not putting it in just for two years putting it in likely for 10, 20, 30 years. And then now you have to figure, okay, what are people going to need 10 years from now? What are they going to need 15 years from now? And that's where fiber, that's why people tend to tilt more towards the fiber, because that's an infrastructure that you're not going to run out of capacity on. You may change your electronics on it, but the actual infrastructure, you're not going to run out of capacity. Um, but this brings up so the that, I think it depends on whether you're meeting the needs now whether, or whether you're focused on meeting the needs of what people will need five or ten years down the road. Right. But now one of the things you and I talked about before we went live uh, mm -hmm. was the question of, you know, when, when someone is saying wireless, often they will say Wi-Fi when they're kind of basically lumping all of wireless into that one banner because everybody understands. Right. <clears throat> it's sort of like the speed and capacity thing that people often use interchangeably. So if right. I look at it from the perspective of, say, point-to-point -point wireless, which is a very different beast than Wi-Fi, um, can I then come back to the, to the, to the point where, uh, you know, there are wisps who are delivering uh, gigabit speeds, and 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 wireless technology is improving. Like I said, you know the the point to point stuff. Um, you still have to obviously have you know the adequate amount of backhaul, but as as wireless technology improves, mm -hmm. then won't there be other considerations of like which technology? option you choose based on not concern about the, the speed, but just basically, you know, does it cost me X for wireless? Do I have terrain issues which make fiber impossible in this region and, and so forth? In other words, speed <clears throat> takes a back seat as the wireless technology improves to the point where 
you know, if all you need in an area is 40 megs, then you start making decisions based on, you know, the cost of building the, the, the fiber versus the wireless, I would think. Yeah, I, I think that yeah, sounds right. You know, I think what gets confusing is um, let's take point-to-point wireless as, as a just a quick example. When you're talking about point-to-point wireless, you're talking about, first of all, different standards within that world. So you, you, there are people offering point-to-point wireless over Wi-Fi. You have people offering point-to-point wireless over WiMAX. You have people offering point-to-point wireless over LTE. And all of those different technologies are going to have different um, frequency blocks. Some are uh, licensed, some are unlicensed, obviously. Um, so the capacity is of a wireless system is really going to be based on uh, the standard, the uh, the protocol, uh, the amount of uh, uh, frequencies that you have uh, available to you, and the network architecture. And so, obviously, in a cellular system, a cellular system there's very little frequency allocated for cellular. And the way the cellular system gets around that is by proliferating base stations and micro base stations. And and that's how the cellular network is built. But that's a very uh, economically intensive activity. And the reality is for a cellular system to work, Increasingly, it means building fiber very close to the subscriber um, because the tall towers just can't handle the capacity anymore, particularly with data. So when you say that there are point-to-point systems that can do a gigabit, that's pretty much only in kind of an ideal situation where you have very little contention, you have a massive amount of spectrum, and you've built the network out to a point where you're now within range to deliver that. So I would say that's the biggest uh, hurdle for wireless is you have all four of those variables, and only in an ideal combination of the four are you able to. But if your goal is only to deliver, you know, 30 or 40 megabits, and you only need to do that in a best effort way and that as people come on and off the network, they may drop down to a lower level and then surge up to a higher level. Yeah, you could probably do that with uh, the technology that these WISPs have, you know, are utilizing today. So, okay, so now let's flip to the issue of fiber Right, so within the wireless realm, you've got <clears throat> you've got Wi-Fi, and you've got point-to-point. Um, <clears throat> some would say that Wi-Fi is great for in-business. I mean, these are just broad generalities. Others will say that fixed uh, point-to-point stuff is is best when you're trying to uh, 
bring broadband to communities in, in, in you know, residences, areas of, of, you know, geographical areas, um, you know, outside. You're, you're moving the data between two points that are external to an inside building. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> within fiber, there are also different architectures and types of technology involved there. Um, right. There's Japan and there's several other parts of the alphabet soup here. What's the difference or between at least the two or three main fiber sure. architectures and then who would use one versus the other? So um, there are two standards bodies that have, uh, have developed uh, uh, fiber standards. And generally, I would say that people should only be looking at global standards because that's where the costs are cheapest and, you know, there's multiple vendors and they're all in high-volume manufacturing. So the two entities are the ITU and the IEEE. And uh, the ITU has developed the GPON standard, which is the what most people utilize throughout the world. And then they're working on next generation standards that will be coming available uh, over the next few years that will take it to higher bandwidth. GPON stands for gigabit uh, passive optical network. And they'll be moving on to higher speeds uh, over time. Uh, the IEEE, which is the same uh, standards body that developed the Ethernet standard. Um, the IEEE has developed two uh, technologies that are utilized in fiber to the home. One was they developed their own uh, passive optical network technology called EPON. And the second one they developed was called point-to-point uh, gigabit Ethernet. They also had before that a point-to-point fast Ethernet, which was 100 megabit, and they have a, a, a 10 gig point-to-point that is not yet adopted for residential, but is used for businesses. So, uh, so really you have two distinct types of architectures. You have where a laser is dedicated to a subscriber, and that's the IEEE standard, And then you have two standards, one IEEE, one uh, ITU, where you have a laser that is shared over multiple subscribers, and that's the path of optical network standards. Um, You know, both, all of these standards can deliver a full gigabit to subscribers, but the traffic engineering is different for each of them. Uh, GPON has tended to be adopted the most on a worldwide basis. So Europe, Asia, and the United States, uh, and and the Americas. Um, uh, Point-to-point gig E has been utilized uh, definitely as a, a business service all over the place. As a residential service, it's primarily been used in more rural applications in the United States and in um, uh, some locations in Europe and particularly in Scandinavia. And then finally, EPON is a standard that was uh, has been largely um, 
successful in East Asia, so Japan, Korea, uh, Taiwan, and um, a, a bit in China, although Gpon is now more popular in China. So, um, you know, I, I, if I were a, a, a city most or a municipality or a new operator coming into the market today, and if you were interested in offering residential services, typically today most people would be looking at either a GPON network or a point-to-point gig e network. If you were looking at business services, uh, you might look at all three technologies. EPON has a new uh, 1010 standard that's suitable for businesses but not residential. Okay. So then to bring it back to the business decision-making um, realm, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, well, just as a, sort of a side note, one of the uh, guests in the chat room has brought up the fact that uh, gigabit wireless in the unlicensed spectrum is an option uh, that's available in a number of places. So what I want to ask is if you could take, let's see, there's there are the, the called the two major flavors of fiber, and mm-hmm. you look at a hybrid network, which is fiber and wireless, and then you maybe look at a point-to-point wireless, what kind of business situations would you match each of those with? In other words, you know, taking the first two, the fiber options, would you use them? You know, you started to talk about if you're dealing just with residential or if you're dealing just with businesses, but maybe just give people a sense of uh, I've got these three categories of options. I've got fiber, I've got hybrid, I've got wireless. When do you decide one versus the other, in a, in a general sense, in a general business sense? I think if you are servicing a hospital um, you know, the anchor institution, the school, the, um, you know, those kinds of entities that are going to have a a large uh, bandwidth or if you're going to service somebody with a high reliability uptime, like a bank, uh, you know, somebody, uh, a data center, I think those from, from servicing businesses I think those clearly uh, fiber would be your preferred. That's not to say that those types of entities in some locations aren't serviced by uh, wireless. If they are, there might be some preference for some sort of dedicated uh, licensed microwave, but I'm sure there's WISPs that serve all those same people. But I would say that would tilt more towards the the fiber. Uh, I think if you get into the um, the uh, middle-sized businesses that maybe don't want that uh, high of an SLA, uh, but maybe still have some strong uptime requirements, that might be you might you might build out the fiber to the to the business park, and then you might utilize a variety of technologies depending on the terrain or the uh, density from going from that location in the business park to the to the actual business entity. When you get into the people that do not require the service level agreement, 
and a more like a, a residential type application uh, as long as you have sufficient capacity in the other systems. I, I, I think there you could be, as we talked earlier, be a little more open depending on your business model and your design uh, to, to evaluating uh, the full range of technology solutions. Because there are a lot of businesses that just look like a residential type service. You know, the, fl the flower shop, I mean, that may be a bad example because when people order flowers, they probably have tight deadlines. But, you know, the, the barber shop is not going to uh, live or die whether their network is, is up 99% of the time. Right. So now are there, uh, I guess, at the front end of your needs assessment, is there a, um, I don't know, some sort of uh, formula or, or top two or three questions that you ask to kind of start to shape this issue of what kind of technology are we looking for, what kind of speed are we looking for, what kind of capacity? Like, how would you see that yeah. un unfolding? Well, I think if it's a municipality, I always divide the the discussion with a municipality or a, uh, I do a lot of work with electric co-ops. Uh, um, I always divide it into like three stages. So there's your internal network, which is, you know, as long as you're going to build a community network, don't forget your internal network because that's going to be your core network and you'll want to support public safety and all those, you know, your own buildings, things like that. So I evaluate it from that. Then I look at the businesses and the anchor institutions because that's going to be where your economic development, uh, you get your biggest uh, uh, leverage in economic development is better serving those entities. And then third are your your retail customers or your residential customers, MDUs, things like that. So I think you need to look at all three of those. Start with the internal network. If you can't justify or identify your own internal needs, you're probably not going to be ready to provide service to businesses or your residents. And mm -hmm. so I've seen a lot of people, particularly munis, but not just munis, uh, start with just doing their internal network, and then they get their feet on the ground. Uh, they they hire the right people. They get a good sense of their needs assessment, and then they move on to providing uh, businesses or anchors in their communities, and then get to residential. There's some people that do steps one and two first. There's others that just go and do all three. But I think most people generally start with at least doing the internal network first. Mm -hmm. And I think coming out of the, the, the implosion of the Muni Wi-Fi market in the 2006, 2007, which, by the way, really weren't run by municipalities but businesses with bad business models, that the yeah. result of the implosion was people started then looking internally because they were sold on the concept of, of, of wireless, <clears throat> but they sort of thought, saw you know, taking care of their mobile workers first as maybe being the first priority 
And then I think along with that came looking at Fiverr as, you know, the internal intranet. And from there, you started then as, as the stimulus came into the play where people started looking at then the institutions and then the residential and business. So we, we would probably are seeing a continuation of that sort of that three-part hierarchy, if you will. Yeah, hmm. that makes sense to me. Okay. You know, and I think that's why going back to your needs assessment, that's why sitting down with all those stakeholders, and obviously that includes your internal stakeholders if you're a muni or a county, become a really big deal, right? Mm-hmm. Now, how would you recommend that um, uh, communities um, get the best results from their technology? I mean, in other words, I have, I have the assumption that uh, the better as a community you can define the needs, the better the business side can define their needs and what they want to do and make this kind of clear to the tech people, be it their internal tech people or an outside vendor, provider, whatever, that that's how you get the best results. But from your experience, what is it that they actually need to be telling those uh, vendors and providers in order to get the best end result? Well, I I would say that... um I have seen, uh, if I look at communities that have been successful versus ones that haven't, uh, I would say the ones that have been successful uh, have focused on uh, having a fairly strong technical uh, core competence in-house so that they... Uh, understood, uh, you know, could interpret what was being heard from citizens, from stakeholders and whatnot, and uh, translate that into an RFI or an RFP for the vendor community. And, uh, you know, there's no question that some communities don't have that in-house expertise or don't have that in-house expertise as developed as they would like to uh, at this point. And that they they clearly need then to, uh, I think everybody should have an outside engineering consultant and, and, and also everybody should have somebody they're working with on the feasibility uh, needs assessment. But I think having that uh, somebody inside the city government or regional government or if you're a new operator who has those technical skills, uh, if you don't have it, you know, there are very good people in the industry who've been there and done that. It's, it's We're a mature industry now. It's not like you have to go out and hire somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. And we saw that a little during the stimulus. We had people that had been awarded stimulus awards who kind of turned to people who didn't have experience in building broadband networks. And those generally didn't end well. Uh, And frequently those 
networks were never built or shut down by the NTIA and the RUS. But that was luckily a very rare event. I mean, there were only a handful of those. And and I think if they had gone to people that had been there and done that, in terms of building broadband networks, and brought in that expertise, they would have been a lot better off. Mm-hmm. Now, Does that there, answer your question? No, that, that, no, that was good. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, we need to understand the need for building certain types of capacities internal to uh, the community, particularly if they're going to go that route. And I'm sure you have seen certain communities that actually should not go the uh, the self-ownership route, that they should rely on some form of a partnership with uh, a provider or a technical entity of of one sort or another. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point. I think as you do that self-assessment, if you come, you know, to the conclusion that you don't have those technical skills, I think uh, working with a, a local or nearby partner who could who could provide that as uh, part of a joint. Uh, service offering. We have a lot of customers that say, well, I could probably build the infrastructure, but I really don't want to offer these services. Some cases there may be state prohibitions against offering the services. And then reaching out to uh, service providers who know how to do that and have expertise in doing that. I think that those there's more people that end up doing some kind of partnership than doing everything themselves. The, the number of models where somebody does everything themselves, at least at the municipal level, is, is probably a small handful of all the municipal networks being built. Mm-hmm. And so last question, we've got just a couple of minutes here. Um, is the uh, availability of either an electric co-op or electric utility a, I don't know, a strong pillar to lean on as communities start to figure out what their tech options should be? Uh, yeah, no question about that. If, if you look at the people that have been successful, you know, building out networks and, you know, just in general on the municipal level, there, there's a very high percentage that are uh, utility owners, electric utility owners. And I think it's because uh, they generally know how to build infrastructure and they have those kind of uh, operationally uh, oriented people that can kind of, you know, build that network. And so uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that they've been the most successful. I mean, even when Google uh, launched their uh, initiative, you'll notice that they – tended to prefer people that own their own utility companies. Kansas City, Missouri, and Kansas City, Kansas were both examples of that. And I think they found it was just easier working with those folks. Some of it was access to polls, but I think a lot of it was just the permitting process and the the whole approach that the community takes to building a network and knowing how to do that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's going to uh, be a wrap for us today. This has been extremely helpful. Uh, Dave, thank you very, very much for, uh, for the insights. And, you know, I encourage uh, a lot of those listening to make sure that you have a good, strong tech person that's going to help make your, your good tech decisions that will then impact your business decisions. So, uh, Dave, again, thank you very much for being here. Uh, thank you sure, to thanks for having me. Oh, no worries. Uh, thank you to all for listening. And tomorrow we're going to tackle the issue of municipal bonds and how that fits within the overall broadband planning strategy. So we will talk again soon. Have a great day.